What scares you the most? You got a phobia? You got this thought that goes through your mind. You're like, ah, what is, what is I'm scared? Uh, I've been through a lot of scary things in my life. Been through some crazy stuff. Several of the stories, I asked myself this question this week. What scares you? Like what just scares you? What's a moment in your past that just scares you? When I was in college, I spent two months in West Africa. Some of the scariest things in my life happened there. I was doing some missionary work there. Uh, I'll tell you a couple of those stories quickly. One, I remember going to visit this prison, and it was this huge prison. The, the walls were probably 25 feet tall, 20 feet tall. They were thick concrete. Instead of barbed wire, they just had broken glass bottles stuck into the concrete all around the perimeter. This is how you get in. I've, I've, I've you know, gone to prisons here locally and in other places in America. There's a system. There's paperwork. It's... It's pretty safe. Uh, this, not so much. This is how you visit these prisons. You go to the front door, you knock, and there's, you remember the Wizard of Oz when the little door opened? He's like, who are you? Is that what he says? Whatever, he opens the little door. So it's like that. And then we're like, we're here to bring some food with the prisoners and pray with them. Okay, so you open the door, big old gate. Dude's standing there with automatic weapons. And you walk between them. And then they shut you in. And then they open another gate, which reveals this giant field of dirt full of prisoners. And they push you in and they shut the door and there's a guy through another little window with a gun like this. And you're just in there, you're in prison now. And so uh, you just see how it goes. I, I remember I was 19 years old. I was like, what have I done? <laughs> like, so that was one. Uh, another one, this also happened in Africa. Um, I was able to go to the home of a, a witch doctor in, in West Africa. And I go in there, I was, actually it was in Togo, it was one of the countries we served in, a French-speaking country, and uh, I go in and I, I went to the home of this witch doctor. And we'd been kind of preaching and talking and meeting with a lot of people at churches. But the one guy's like, there's this one guy, pretty sure he's demon-possessed, let's go spend some time with him. We're like, sweet, sign me up, let's go. So we walk in, we sit in this little bitty hut, and around us are all these like voodoo dolls and like concoctions, and he's snorting some sort of thing, and he's like high as a kite, but also you can see like, darkness in his eye. I remember the aura of just being like, I've never felt the, the presence of darkness like that in my life other than being there. And so we sit with him and the main missionary guy, he's talking, and then he looks at me, remember I said it's a French speaking country, he goes, Christophe, you shall pray. And I was like, me? For the witch doctor? So like I'm praying for him, and the guy reaches over and like touches me, and I just felt, it was I was scared, okay? That wasn't a funny story, that was a scary story. Okay, there's no, I've had a lot of crazy stuff happen in my life, a lot of scary moments. I've, had, I've been at gunpoint at least twice in my life. I was trying to think, I think there's a third time, but you know, after two, you know, who's counting? Um, it, it, crazy stuff, right? Uh, there's been moments where my family's been in danger and, and I feared their life. Crazy stuff, but this is what got me this week. I said, what is the scariest moment that I can think of? And immediately this moment popped into my mind. So I told you the other stories, right? Okay, so this is my scale I'm working with. It was around 2011, and I was working with a church outside of Charlotte uh, in Concord. Uh, we were actually there for a year to, I was apprenticing under a guy to do church planting before we started this church. And uh, I was doing a lot of things. And one thing I was doing was working with their youth group. And so I'm working with the youth group, and I get assigned the role of being a seventh grade girls small group leader. That's my moment. That's the moment that came to my mind. I'm serious. I, I laughed out loud. I realized that's the scariest that you can think of. I don't know what it was, but I remember like all the other times, like I'm pretty cool, calm and collected and in crazy positions. But I remember every week before I went, I'm like, what am I going to say? <laughs> like, what if they ask me questions? What if they talk about stuff I don't want to talk about, you know? And uh, so I was terrified. Um, have you been scared? Yes, you've, you've been scared. What are the things you're scared of? You know, I mean, I think there's, maybe you're scared of needles, People have fears like that. You don't want tattoos. You don't want shots. Maybe for you, it's like the fear of being in hospitals. Uh, this past week, last Friday, my grandmother had a stroke. 
Uh, we were with her for several days, uh, back and forth, and going in and out of the hospital. I spent a couple of nights in the hospital. She finally she passed away on, on Tuesday. Uh, she was 88 years old. So I do I appreciate all of you who reached out and, and uh, sent your condolences. But uh, a lot of people are really uneasy in hospitals, and maybe that's a fear for you. And you're sitting in that. And you're like, I don't I don't want to do that. It's, it makes me maybe it's a, a classic fear. It's a fear of spiders or snakes or heights. You know, you just got one of these classic fears. What is it that scares you? I find it interesting that of all the things that scare us, first of all, many of them like really aren't that scary when you get right down to it. And then it hit me, why is it that one of our biggest fears sometimes is talking to people about our faith? Why is it that sometimes one of our biggest fears is getting into serious spiritual conversations, whatever your background is? I think it might come from our culture. Like we kind of live in a culture where it's like, hey, you, you keep your mouth shut. You believe what you want to believe. Don't talk about it to me because that's none of your business. And that's probably part of it. But I also think there's part of us that's just like it's vulnerable and it's raw and maybe by essence, like faith is, there's a percentage of faith that we're not sure about, right? Isn't that what faith is? Faith is like this bridge between what I know and what I don't know. So I'm gonna faith between here and there. That's what faith is. So whatever it is you believe, that's what, but when we want to talk about it, we get vulnerable. We have fear. Now, the reason I bring this up is because we're in this series, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And the whole push of the series is to give us this uh, encouragement, this kind of permission to talk about the things we believe about God. Not only permission, but almost like a mandate. We've talked about it in three ways. There's kind of some, uh, some barriers or some factors involved when it comes to our faith. And the first one we talked about in the first week, this was two weeks ago, we talked about the obedience factor. Someone was talking to Jesus once and said, what's the most important thing, the biggest commandment that we can learn from the Bible? And Jesus says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is a mandate. This is basically a commandment. We talked about the obedience factor because the question was, what if we took God's instructions to us seriously? What if we took them literally? What if we actually talked to our neighbors, like when Jesus said neighbor, I don't think he was thinking about, you know, the person with the address that's, you know, one or two digits different than your address. You know, generally he meant your neighbor. But we said, you know, if, if we're just kind of aiming at everybody as our neighbor, if you aim at everything, often you will hit nothing. So the challenge of this series was like, what about the people you actually live next to? You remember when we drew the tic-tac-toe? And maybe you weren't here, let me tell you what it was. We drew kind of a tic-tac-toe or Hashtag, all right, so you got in the middle, the little spot, and that's your house. That's where you live. And next to you, adjacent on left and right, you've got your next door neighbors on either side. You've got front and back neighbors. Then you've got these diagonal neighbors on either side. There's eight spaces in that tic-tac-toe. And the simple challenge was this. Can you write down the first names of everybody in those spaces? Can you do that? If you can't, I want to encourage you there to tell you this. That's a little bit creepy, isn't it? You live next door to strangers. Like, you should know your neighbors but we've replaced our picket fences with privacy fences. We don't wanna know our neighbors. We don't wanna talk to nobody. Beyond that though, the goal is not to know our neighbors, the goal is to love them, like to really serve them and ultimately lead them to faith in Jesus. That's, that's the big goal. So phase two is this. I've written down a name. Do I know something personal about them? Anything. Do I know where they went to college? Do I know what their favorite you know, football team is? Do I know whatever? And then the third phase is this. How, do you know anything meaningful about them? Uh, what are their hopes and dreams? What's going on in their life? And, and, and when you move to that third step, you, you move, you change from something more than just neighbors. You become friends. And then from there, hopefully, you can 
begin to pave paths into helping them know God better and, and at least you know, know what you believe. That's the obedience factor. What if we took it seriously? Last week, Patrick talked about the time factor. What is it that keeps us from doing this? We are busy. We are so busy. We cram our schedule so full. And you know Jesus said these are the two most important things. Love God. Love your, love your neighbors. Again, it could be anybody, but we're asking specifically the people next to you. But we, we're busy. What do we do? We keep our head down, our eyes down. Mind my own business. I make my own money. I spend my own money. I don't have time for anybody else. Into the driveway, into the carport, into the garage. The door closes behind me. I'm on Netflix until I got to go to work again because I'm busy. But what if we kept our eyes up and we began to look for the needs around us? The time factor gets in our way, but we tried last week to talk about this. I, I, I wanna thank Patrick. He stepped in for me when my grandmother had the, the stroke last week. I called him, it was literally Friday, and I said, dude, I, got, I gotta go. I don't think I'll be here this weekend. So Patrick jumped right in and did a great job last week. You can catch up on our, our podcast if you missed that, but... The obedience factor, the time factor. This week, I wanna kind of close us out this week with the fear factor. What is the barrier that gets in the way between us loving our neighbors the way that Jesus would have us love our neighbors? And I think when I started out talking about things we're afraid of, I think there's a fear component. When it comes to wanting to talk to people about God, for a lot of us, taking the steps to go across the line to our neighbor's house, to our coworker's you know, desk, to our friend's phone, and having spiritual conversations, that is terrifying. You remember the TV show, Fear Factor? What a weird show. I remember this one episode, this guy was like, like laying on a table, he was like strapped to a table, and they put like this clear box on his head. And I guess this guy's afraid of spiders, so like what do they do with this guy? They put like tarantulas on his face? Like, that's the weirdest show, and I think you could win money, so it's like you overcome your fear. But, but for a lot of us, talking to someone about our faith is like, I, I'll take the tarantulas, honestly. I would much rather, I put my hand in a box of roaches, I'll do that. Let's not talk about you know, faith stuff. That's, that's not me. It's important, it's big. And what if crossing that line, what if going across the, the, the boundary line of your yard or into someone else's life is the difference between them feeling and living in brokenness or them knowing the eternal love of God and their purpose in this world under Jesus is, 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 is amazing. So what I wanna do this week is I wanna unpack a story uh, from Luke chapter seven. So if you got a Bible today, grab it. We got some free Bibles in the shelf over here by the door. Uh, you can feel free to grab one now or look it up on your phone or get one before you leave. We always give these Bibles away because people need good readable versions of the Bible. But the scripture is gonna be on the screens here as well. We're gonna be in Luke chapter seven. Luke is one of the four biographies of Jesus' life. And I like Luke because Luke's all about details and I'm a detail guy. I love to know kind of why and how and that kind of stuff. So in Luke chapter seven, we're landing in this middle of a story where Jesus has been invited to a party. Someone shows up that's uninvited and we see how everybody reacts to some, uh, some prejudices or some preconceived notions they have about this uninvited party guest. And so let's just kind of jump in in Luke chapter seven. We're gonna be in verse 36. And if you want to read along with me, here we go, I'll read it. Luke chapter seven, verse 36, it says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, 
she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Paul's right there. My neighbor's name is Tommy. I've been to some cookouts at his house, okay? If I ever go to Tommy's house and he's having a cookout and then like the crazy lady from down the street shows up and like he's invited me, I'm his guest. And this lady shows up and she starts like boo-hoo crying behind my back, then gets down on her knees and begins to scrub my feet with her tears and then takes a bottle of Calvin Klein perfume or something, starts dumping it on my feet. Can we admit that's a little bit weird? Like that's crazy. What is happening here? But there's some components here that as you read it, you're also like, Wow, what a vulnerable situation. What's, this, what's going on in this lady's life where she feels like she needs to do this? And as we read on, I wanna kind of give us a couple of details. First of all, note the Pharisee is hosting the party. Jesus is the guest of honor. This woman shows up and she's got a reputation. We're gonna talk about that in just a second. But what she pulls out, it says it's an alabaster jar. And all you need to know about this jar is that it's very valuable. It's actually like a stone. It's like a soft stone. This isn't like a, like a mason jar that, you, you know, your grandma put corn in. Like this is like a stone that has to be kind of hewn out. And, and it's a soft stone. And then they'd fill it with these oils, this, this valuable oil. And, it was, and then it would be kind of sealed back. And so the only way to get into this oil would be to break the jar. And the value of this jar for many families would be maybe a, a year's wages. This is the kind of thing that would be a family heirloom. It'd be passed down. It'd be the kind of thing that you would save for perhaps if your spouse died and you would use it to ceremonially kind of anoint them as, you know, as, they, as, they, as they die. It's, a very, it's not just a Victoria's Secret special colognes, you know, perfume. This is a very valuable heirloom. And so she comes to this random party and she's heard some stories about this Jesus guy who is changing lives. She's clearly got some baggage and she thinks, I wanna take the most valuable thing I own, most likely, and I'm gonna give it to him in this really weird way. We're not always uh, making the most sense and being the most uh, practical when we're at our most broken moments, but it's also in those moments that those gestures are the most beautiful. I've had some awkward conversations with people this week as, as I was at the funeral and the visitation for my grandmother and people saying weird things and telling stories. They're like, eh, that's a weird story. But you know what they're doing? They were loving us. <laughs> that's what we do and that's where this lady is. And uh, the problem is there were some people around Jesus who saw what was going on and they, they didn't dig it. They kind of knew this lady. They, they didn't want to talk about her. They didn't want to see her and she definitely wasn't invited to the party. Let's keep reading in verse 39. So when the Pharisees who had invited him, remember they're the host, they saw this, he said to them, well, if this man were a prophet, pause. Okay, he's talking about Jesus and Jesus has kind of developed this reputation as a mega teacher. He was a rabbi. He was people that people began to follow. He was a person that people began to follow. And there was kind of this notion that he was a great teacher. In fact, some were comparing him to like Moses who is one of the great, the, I mean, among the Jews, this is the guy. And so this reputation comes, and the Pharisees were kind of always poking holes in that, trying to decide, like, is he really, is he really that good? And so he's like, you know, let's go back to our verse. You know, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. 
Okay, there's a lot of speculation that could go on about this lady. Uh, what did she do? What kind of lifestyle she lived? I think we read between the lines. We try to make it, uh, you know, she was a, you know, a floozy, a prostitute, something sexual. That could be, it could, who knows what her, like, it says she was living a life of sin. I don't think that's as important as what's about to happen. But before we get there, it's like, do you know someone like that, this woman? We got a phrase in our culture. We call them black sheep. You know any black sheep? Got some black sheep in your family? Some of us are like, that's me. <laughs> um, you know? And, and people, it's that person. Like they, they, can, they, they seem incapable of making a good decision. I don't know what's wrong with this person. How stupid are you? And everybody's got that uncle or that aunt or that cousin or that coworker. And so someone calls you and you're like, yeah, so-and-so's in jail. And you know you have this thought, like I'm surprised. You know what I mean? And so maybe it's not prison, but it's something else. They're just, it's just a habitual thing. And we get this label and we get this impression and granted, it's, it's, you earn it a lot of times. And also there are consequences and there should be punishments and things like that. But this is a persona that we put on people. They're black sheep. What do we do about black sheep? Like, what do we do with them? Do we just like cast them off? That's what these guys are doing. Do you know what kind of woman she is? If you were a prophet and you knew what kind of woman this was, you would not be letting her touch you right now. She dirty. And this, this is like, this is the approach we take to black sheep in this world. There's a point at which you cross this line, you're dead to me. We're done. Again, we, there are lines and we're human. So we kind of don't know where those lines are. Luckily, Jesus is God in the flesh. He's got something to teach us. But here's some food for thought here. What is it that these Pharisees call her at the end of verse, what was that, 39? Did you know she is a sinner? Is it possible that anybody could describe you with those same words? Real quick, do an exercise with me. You can physically do it or you can just like mentally, figuratively do it. But if you happen to have a mirror, one of those old school like uh, Cinderella mirrors, hold that up to your face and ask yourself, what do you see? Obviously, you see your own face, but looking back at you, are you a person who might have some, he or she is a sinner in your background? We all do, I think. Um, congratulations if you were perfect. But like most of us are not killing it in that department. And so we've got some baggage, we've got some mess. Here's a phrase I learned this week I wanna teach us. Maybe not only do you have some past mess, do you have some sin on your calendar? Like I learned that phrase this week and it blew my mind because I realized we are a people who actually plan to dishonor God with our decisions. Like humans, we are. Do you have some sin on your calendar? Maybe like you got this addiction and you know it's, you know it's like killing you and it's, and it's crushing you spiritually and whatever, but you're like, you know what? Like today I'm at church, so I'm good. But tonight I'm hanging out with the boys and we're going buck wild. Or it's the stuff you look at on the internet. Or maybe like this woman, there's the speculation that there's some uh, adultery or infidelity or some sort of a, you know, sin of intimacy going on. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're in a situation where you're in a relationship. And I, don't, I wanna clarify, because we're here and it's an opportunity to teach it, God's very clear about his thoughts on sex and marriage. And that is that they belong together and not separate, period. That's it. You, you, you don't get mature enough to have sex. You don't get old enough to have sex. You get married. That's, that's how God says it. We live in a culture where we try to constantly redefine things based on what we think 
um, but that's not the way God does things. He says, this is what I say. This is how I created you. And if we step back from that and uh, go, well, who are you to say that? Well, let's just step back and see what uh, sex outside of healthy, godly marriage, let's see how that's helped our culture. Let's see how that's doing. Let's see how it's impacting our kids today. Let's see how it's impacting our families today. And so this isn't a debate about politics. This is a debate about almost logic. Uh, let's just see. When we do things God's way, let's see how life goes. When we do things different than God's way, let's see how life goes. Maybe that's a, that's a sin you've got on your calendar. I don't know. But I wanted to say these things because as we look in the mirror, here's what I see. Black sheep. What do we do with that? We're learning. That's what this series is. Won't you be my neighbor? Loving people the way Jesus would love them. But what does Jesus do about it? Let's finish the story. I love how Jesus always goes into some like story. He's like, I'm not just going to tell you what I think. I'm going to tell you a story and let you figure it out. And so in verse 40, he talks to this Pharisee. Apparently his name was Simon. He says, Simon, I got something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. So he tells the story. Okay, well, two people owed money to a certain money keeper, money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50 denarii. You don't have to know what denarii are, but you can do the math and be like, this is, what, 10 times more money. Okay, it's a lot of money. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, but he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon's reply, and I imagine before he replied, he said, duh. And then he said, I suppose the one that had the bigger debt forgiven would love him more. Jesus said, you've judged correctly. Verse 44, then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not even give me any water for my feet. It was customary to wash someone's feet when they came to your house. You're wearing sandals, there's dusty roads. Especially he was a guest, he was invited to the party and that was just part of the culture. You didn't even give me any water to wash my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, another cultural thing. You know, we shake hands. They did a little kiss on the cheek. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. And so therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved me, saved you. Go in peace. I love this practical lesson on forgiveness. I love the chance that we get to see into the window, into this house of what's going on as Jesus approaches this black sheep of a person, someone who is much more like us than the Pharisees think that they are. And that Jesus' response is, I see that you're trying your best and that you're seeking my presence and your faith forgives you. I forgive you because of your faith. Um, I think if there's a lesson that the world needs to hear, your neighbors, your coworkers, the people that we're so scared to talk to, it's not that you're all going to hell. That's the message that many times people think that Christians are saying. But the message is, there's a chance for forgiveness. 
There's a chance for a new start with God. In fact, God loves you. He already loves you, and he just wants you to love him back. This is a chance that if you step away from whatever it is that was on your calendar that was keeping you separate from God and pushing him away, if you would just lean into his presence in your life, God's like, I have so much more purpose for you, so much more life for you. Will you, will you do that with me? There's a possibility for forgiveness. There's a possibility for a fresh start. And if you put yourself in this woman's shoes, <laughs> she walks into a house full of religious leaders. You realize this? Imagine walking into a house full of preachers. I do it all the time and I'm nervous. <laughs> Imagine walking into a house full of preachers and, and you're the one with the bad reputation and no one in the room believes that there's any hope for you. But you heard about this guy, Jesus. And he's proclaiming that the kingdom of God is here and that there's a way to salvation and that there is hope and that God loves you and that if you'll turn to him, you can be forgiven and you can have new life. And you walk in and you say, forget all of them. I wanna be with Jesus. I think you'd be on your knees washing his feet with your hair too. And Jesus doesn't look down and see her as a black sheep. You know, Jesus is called the good shepherd. And there's several different places where, where he talks about the sheep straying away. And Jesus said, you know, as the good shepherd, I would leave the healthy flock of the 99 and I would walk out to save the one. That's what it means to love people the way that Jesus loves them. And there are so many barriers that get in our way and I think the one that might stop us the most is our fear. What are they gonna think if I bring this up? Our fear, I'm not perfect. I got so much baggage in my past, I need like a trailer to pull it. Our fear, they're kind of different. I don't wanna hang out with them. You know, our fear, drama. Nobody wants to get involved. Raise your hand if you wanna get involved in somebody else's drama. Anybody? We're having a sign-up group today for that. That's gonna be fun. No, like, so, I mean, we got this, this neighbor down my street. It's four or five houses, six houses down, and I've never met them, and I've tried. They're never home, it doesn't seem. But, but about once every six months, uh, the sheriff shows up, normally about four or five sheriff cars. And it's normally about, you know, 12 o'clock at night, one o'clock in the morning, and it makes a big ruckus. And the first time this happened, I walked out into the street, and I met with a bunch of other neighbors. I'm just kind of a looky-looey, kind of like, what is going on? And like the other neighbors, they were like, well, that's them. We don't really know what their problem is, but they, every six months or so, they need the cops to come, and, and, it, and the husband and wife need, you know, some mediation with law enforcement involved. And like, and, and what was sad is even in myself, we all kind of left that circle, and we're like, man, and it stinks for them. And then we walked back into our house. Because you know what it would mean for me to walk down there and be like, hey, bro, you want to go grab a burger tomorrow and hang out? It looks like y'all having some issues. I don't want to get involved in that. But loving people the way that Jesus loved us means not walking around with our eyes to the ground, taking care of me, making my own money, spending my own money, getting to the house, watching Netflix. It means keeping my eyes up, looking for the needs, and saying, how can I come and bring you closer to the God that I know? Not because I'm perfect, but because he will look at you and say, your sins are forgiven. You can have a fresh start. But we're scared. As we close today, I wanna to tell you a couple things. We're gonna look at two scriptures. I'm gonna tell you one story and we'll be done. First Peter 3, 13 through 16. As Peter's teaching 
Uh, we, actually, we actually looked at verse 15 a couple weeks ago, but often when you read 1 Peter 3, 15, uh, I rarely re- rewind and read a few verses before it, but I love it. This is what it, what it says. It says, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Now, that's a loaded question because you're like, uh, lots of people would probably harm me if I was eager to do good. That's fair, okay? But the question is like, okay, well, whose team are you on? Okay, if, if God is for us, then who can be against us? That's in the book of Romans, okay? So with the, with the mindset that I'm on God's team, who is gonna harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. As Peter is writing this, the people that he is writing to are under the threat of persecution from the Roman government. This is this time and period where they're putting Christians on big pointy sticks and hanging them in the road and lighting them on fire, okay? So we're not, we're not receiving persecution as Americans compared to that, okay? So this is, he's talking to them and saying, don't be afraid. But verse 15, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. We don't have to be afraid because the message that we share is a message straight from God. And the message is that God loves you and he will, And if you look through history and you'll see there are people who have entered hostile cultures and maybe on the front end of it, it was not received well, but when people were persistent and they got in and they took the time to meet the people and love them, you can't just walk up to someone and slap them in the head with a Bible. It does not work. My dad tried it. It didn't work. But when I knew my dad loved me, and when he talked to me and he got to know me and he crossed the lines at the time when I'm a teenager and he's a grown man and he's like, I gotta figure out how this kid thinks. I gotta figure out how he works. And as my family began to break through my own walls and I had other friends that come into my life, that's what began to convince me. That's what began to convert me. That's what began to let me know what the love of God is. So it says, do so with gentleness and respect. Next verse. Second Timothy 1.7. The spirit God gave us. Time out. When you choose Jesus, I believe scripture gives us some really clear uh, instructions and directions. We can have faith in God. Lots of people have faith in quote unquote God. Sometimes big G, sometimes little G's. Faith in God. But when we understand who Jesus is, that God put skin on, became a human, he died to take the place of our punishment for our sin and then he rose from the dead. This dude rose from the dead. Like I was at a funeral Thursday and my grandma raises from the dead. We are gonna be freaked out, okay? That's weird. But Jesus rose from the dead. His followers who had dispersed and left him because they were afraid, they were so convinced that he rose from the dead that they rejoined forces and changed the world, started the church. And when we choose Jesus, we believe that. Scripture says, repent from our sins. This is Acts chapter two. Repent from our sins. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as God's present in our, in our life. So, verse 2 Timothy 1.7, for the spirit God gave us, that's that spirit, God's spirit in our life, does not make us timid, scared, afraid, living in fear, the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power. Look at the second one. Love 
I can put up with your drama not because I like you, but because I love you. And self-discipline, which is an interesting word in that list, because I think we need a healthy scoop of that every day because the sin on our calendar and the sin in our past tries to pull us away from God. But God's spirit gives us power. We don't have to be afraid. Love, we don't have to have the capacity to love like God loves because he, he shows us his example and believe me, he will continue to empower you to love people if you would just lean into him in self-discipline. Neighboring is messy. When you get into other people's lives and you try to love them like Jesus loves them, it can be messy, but it's worth it. I have to tell the story just because it's, probably because it's therapeutic, I don't know. Um, but this week, my grandmother did pass away, and, and uh, Thursday we had a funeral. Uh, Wednesday night we had a visitation. I think hundreds of people showed up, and it was amazing. She was a public school teacher for over 40 years, and my grandfather was a preacher at the same church for 46 years. And so they basically were like the mayor and queen of this little bitty town in eastern North Carolina. <laughs> and so, I know, uh, that was 89, or let's see, 60 or more years ago that they moved there. And, and, and watching this, this, this train of people come through and shake our hand. And I'm, I, was, I drew the short straw, so I was the first one in the receiving line. And like, I'm meeting stranger after stranger after stranger, and every one of them wants to tell me about how they remember when I was this tall and how they knew everybody back then. But what they began to tell me was the impact that my grandmother had made in their life. Now, my grandmother uh, was a public school teacher. She taught second, third, and fourth grade in different times over that long period. There were complete strangers that our whole family didn't know who showed up and said, you know, 30 years ago, your grandma was my third grade teacher and we were in a bad situation and uh, this is Eastern North Carolina. It was 30 years ago and there's a lot of racial tension, okay? And, and, there were, and in a lot of these areas, it's like you're black or you're white and you don't really do stuff together. But my grandma, she was one of those people that was like, forget that. <laughs> I'm hanging out with you anyway. And so uh, some young African-American men who were growing up in that school who were loved by an older white woman who was like, I'm gonna help you. I'm gonna help you with your family. I'm gonna help you with your homework. I, that was specifically a story that I remember hearing. And I've been ashamed at some of the things I've seen some of my family members do in terms of race relations. I'm like, get it, nanny. <laughs> and on and on the line went. And I hear the story after the story after the story of not the huge things that she had done in their life, but the little things crossing the line, having her eyes up, looking for the need, providing the love of God, and many of those people becoming Christians because of her. And I can only ask myself, when my time comes, what is the impact that I wanna leave on this world? That I had a really cool lawn, that I had all my stuff in my house real organized, that I had a great career and invested my money well, Oh, man, that dude loved people. My hope, church family, is that we can be a community of people, that that's our reputation. And no matter what people's background or baggage is, that they can be part of this family and they can grow together. And that we're not afraid to step into somebody's life that might be messy or different or drama-filled or difficult. But we can just say, all right, let's do it. Lace up our boots, let's go. That's the fear factor exposed in the love of God.
So if you're wrestling any kind of fear in your life, I want to encourage you to take it to God. Take it to your church family. Make some friends here. Pray through it. I think God's going to come through with overwhelming results. And I think at the end of the day, as we shine the light of Jesus into the dark parts, parts of this city, lives are going to be changed. And it'll be because you were willing to keep your eyes up and grow across the property line and love your neighbor. Let's pray.